I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dare Shchai Experiment, the show where we attempt to plumb the depths of wisdom. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey guys. And uh, today we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. One of the things that I really like about the book of Ecclesiastes is it seems that there is a an acknowledgement that things don't always go the way that you think they should. When you turn to the book of Proverbs, there's all these these proverbs about you do this, you get this, you do that, you get that. You know, you're righteous, you'll have a long life. If you do good, you're going to have many, plenty of friends and so on and so forth. That's which are, why it's very commonly used for prosperity gospel. Right. But Ecclesiastes doesn't do that. It's the older man's looking back on his life and saying, you know what? There's a lot of times where you can do the right thing and you're not going to get the best outcome. Yeah. You're not guaranteed a good outcome. Yeah. It's a lot more realistic, in my opinion, a lot more acknowledging the truth of the world, especially as we look out and see it. You know, Proverbs is how things should be, and the the Proverbs that will help keep a person pointing due north, as it were. But Ecclesiastes is is more, you know, sometimes it ain't going to turn out all roses and sunshine. And even the end of this chapter, which we'll eventually get to, is it's talking about, you know, even the wisest person can't fully comprehend God, can't fully comprehend what he's doing, can't fully understand the magnitude of his plans. So just because our limited view of the world looks like things aren't going well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not perfectly within God's plan. Right. And that's one of the things we're actually going to read again this week is the idea that there's a time and a season for everything. And that means everything. There's there's a times and seasons where the righteous man will perish early. There's times and seasons where the wicked men will extend their lives. And when we look out at the world, that actually seems to be the way of the world. Yeah. The righteous people end up getting cut off and the, the wicked continue in their sin and are able to to prolong their days. But I think Solomon grasps the larger picture here in that in the end, even the wicked who have extended their lives by maybe a decade through deceit or cheating or unjust gain, unjust gain they're not going to find life in the end. And that's just one of the many treasures that we're going to find in this week's chapter. So let's go ahead and read chapter eight. And then let's dig in a little deeper and just see what kind of beauty this chapter holds for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 Who is like the wise person? Who knows the meaning of a matter? A person's wisdom makes his face shine, transforming the harshness of his face. 
I say, obey the king's command, and especially in regard to the oath of God. Do not be hasty to rush out of his presence. Do not stand up for an evil cause, because he will do whatever he desires. Since the word of a king has authority, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will not experience harm, and a wise person's heart discerns the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person's trouble is heavy upon him. Since no one knows what will be, who can tell when it will happen? No one has authority over the wind to restrain it, nor authority over the day of death. As no one is discharged during a battle, so wickedness cannot rescue its master. I have seen all this while applying my mind to everything done under the sun. Sometimes one person dominates another person to his own harm. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to come and go from the holy place, but will soon be forgotten in the very city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. When the sentence against a crime is not swiftly carried out, the human heart is encouraged to do evil. Even though a sinner might commit a hundred crimes and prolong his days, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God, for those who revere him. But it will not go well with the wicked, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is another enigma that occurs upon the earth. There are righteous people who are requited according to the work of the wicked, and there are wicked people who are requited according to the work of the righteous. I said this also is meaningless, so I recommend enjoyment, because there is nothing better for humanity under the sun except to eat, drink, and enjoy it. So this joy will accompany him in his labor all the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to observe the activity that is done upon the earth, my eyes not seeing sleep either day or night, then I saw all the work of God. No one can comprehend the work that is done under the sun. Despite all human efforts to seek it out, no one comprehends. Even if a wise person claims to know, he cannot really comprehend. Who is like a wise one and who knows the meaning of a matter? That is a deep question. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the whole point of this book, though, isn't it? Yeah, and and to open this chapter with that and then answer it at the end with nobody. Right. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. No one can know the, the meaning of a matter. No one can know, uh, as it says in chapter 6, what comes after for what man can know what comes after him. No one can know the works of God. We are too small. We're too limited in our understanding. We're too limited in our... In our... Uh, capacity. Yeah, in our capacity to be able to discern what's... Even, even the wisest man can't understand. Right. Right. And yet he has set himself to understand this, to attempt to discern this. And that's a... It's a lofty goal for him to set this this goal to try to discern the meaning of life, as it were, or at least the meaning of the physical manifestation of life, and to then, in the midst of it, go, eh, who can possibly know it? <laughs> well, I think the adage of the more I know, the more I realize I don't know yes. comes into play here. Yes, definitely. But he does say that, you know, a, a person's wisdom makes his face shine. 
transforming the harshness of his face. So it's not to say that we can't actually have wisdom. We can't have some understanding, but we're never going to know it to its fullest. We're never going right. to know it to its all ends. Right. And the making the face shine and, and softening the harshness, the, the wiser you get, yeah, you get more grief, but you also get kind of a peace. Mm-hmm. That seems like and you get more empathy with others. Compassion. Yes. Yeah. Because you recognize yourself in them and you recognize where you were before going, Hey, you know what? They're just not, they just haven't gotten it yet. And that's okay. You know? Right. Well, at least it should, I guess. Yeah. There is definitely the possibility that it will make one proud as well. Right. But is that true wisdom? <laughs> that's, that is the question that uh, I'm not sure any of us can know. So in verse two, it says, guard the king's command because of the oath before God. Um, yours says, especially in regard. regard to the oath of God. And, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. Uh, it's a, you know, this is a Romans 13 type passage here where is this, is this the covenant that we're talking about here? That, that oath? No, I don't think so. I think it's recognizing that there is a king that is set up over men and that we are to obey the king. When when the king says do a thing, we do what the king says, because he's been appointed as authority over us. And that goes doubly so when the king is commanding something that is that aligns with God's commands. But what what is it talking about the oath of God? What does that mean? I think that's what it, what it is, especially when it's when his commands align with the oath to God. Okay. Regard, align with your duties to the ultimate king. And he's saying, you know, obey the king. And when the king tells you to do something that is in alignment with what God has told you to do, then definitely do that. Okay. Especially yeah. do that. I think that's kind of what he's saying. But he's he's recognizing the Romans 13, you know, there are governments who are set up and they're set up for reasons. Mm-hmm. And it is our duty as as citizens of a kingdom to conform ourselves to the laws of the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is that the word in Hebrew in this chapter is not the word obey. Hmm. It's not Shema. It's not. It is not. It is the word guard, Shamar. Ah, okay. It's the word guard or keep. It's translated as keep, but it's really a military word for for guarding an outpost or a position, standing and watching guard over something. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, in I believe, in Romans 13, it talks about honoring your your government, not necessarily being in full obedience or compliance with the government, but honoring your government and their government officials and, and showing due honor to who, to whom honors do. And I think that changes the impetus from obedience in all, in all matters at all times in all areas to if the government tells you to do something that goes against one of God's commands that you're not under obligation to obey them. Yeah. Okay. I think that's that's super important, especially, if, for example, take the time of the Maccabees. You had Antiochus Epiphanes commanding Israel not to name their God, not to study the Torah, not to participate in Sabbath, not to keep the dietary laws, to sacrifice to idols, not to circumcise their children. Mm-hmm. And anyone who was caught doing any of these things was put to death. And the... The righteous Jews were driven underground. There were those who decided to, for the sake of saving their lives, obey the emperor. 
And there were those who decided to obey God. And they were forced underground, had to live in caves, had to go into small communities, had to create ruses to trick the officials or guards or occupying soldiers into thinking that they were doing one thing while they were really doing another. That's where the the dreidel game comes from mm-hmm. for Hanukkah. Um, they invented the dreidel game as a way to get together as Jewish men and talk about Torah, talk about God's commands, while looking like they were playing a a betting game. Yep. And the game is actually designed to go on forever <laughs> anybody but if you've a, ever played it you know it goes on forever <laughs> lasts forever and it was designed that way so that they could continue to play and money would change hands and you know it'd go back and forth but nobody would ever really come out on top except for in some rare circumstances for the most part you just keep playing and playing and playing and while no one's watching you talk torah you know a guard comes around the corner or looks over your shoulder and you're you're betting on your, come on, hey, roll a hey, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You're basically betting on dice. I think that's important to recognize is that the Bible doesn't tell us to obey our governments. It tells us to honor our governments and to keep their commands. And to pray to, for their to good. To guard for their command, guard their commands rather. And to pray for their good, right. Mm-hmm. Which is super important. Because we need to recognize that should the government tell us to do things that are unrighteous, we can legitimately say no. And there's been a litany of situations like that in history that we can pull from to say, no, that it's okay to disobey unrighteous authorities when those unrighteous authorities ask you to do something against God. Right. And another example is Corey Ten Boonen or Schindler or any of the others in Nazi Germany. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, where they were hiding Jews from the from their rightful government, keeping mm-hmm. them from being taken off and executed, thrown into concentration camps and starved to death and gas chambered and so on and so forth. The right thing to do was to save the people. Right. So we do need to, to recognize that. Uh, continuing on, don't be in a hurry to go from his presence. Do not take a stand in evil matter, for he does whatever he pleases. Don't be hasty. Don't be hasty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, a little bit of free beard here. Um, <laughs> but uh, don't be in a hurry to go up from his presence. Mm. You say? Don't be hasty to rush out of his presence. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, it's good to be near a king because uh, kings were seen as wise and they were seen as God's appointed. And so don't be, don't be too quick to, to leave his presence. And don't stand up for an evil cause. Because he will do whatever he desires. Right. So always take the side of good. Even if the king is looking to do evil, don't don't side with him. Don't jump on the bandwagon. The don't king, be a yes man just because the king says to do something. You you don't have to agree. Yeah, and that's it right there. That's that's the you don't necessarily need to obey the king or even to you know, provide the counsel that he expects you to provide. You can be your own man. The king will do what, he, what the king's going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who says to him, what are you doing? So that's that's just the absolute truth. That's the, the Nietzschean uh, truth. Without God, power is what makes right. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the world does, in fact, operate that way without God. 
that might makes right. If you can get away with it, then obviously you're you're right. You can do whatever you want. There is no moral standard but power. And that's true. The king the king does have power. Where he is, there's power. Where his word is even, you know. A good example of that is in the book of Esther, where Ahasuerus, you know, sends out a decree to all of the satrapies under his under his rule, and his word goes to them, and his law is in effect as soon and as the word is there. even he can't change it. All right. There's power there. He who guards the command knows no evil matter, and the heart of the wise discerns the time and, and justice. What is that last word for you? Procedure. Time procedure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so if you guard the king's command and don't go against it, then you're not going to be punished for it. Which isn't, I guess, necessarily 100% true. This yeah, is one of those areas true. where it may seem a little bit naive of Solomon to say something like this. Especially later, as he later in the chapter recognizes that some of that naivete is swept away. But the idea here being that if you're a good citizen, then you're not going to suffer evil from the hands of your government. But that's not always not always the case. For every matter, there is a time. And there it is. There's the connection with the uh, the previous chapter, chapter 2, for the times and seasons. Though the trouble of a man is heavy upon him. Yeah, so in verse 6 it says, For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person's trouble is heavy upon him. So I see this as, you know, in verse five, it's do what the king tells you to do, do what, obey his commands, because there is a proper time and procedure. And then do the proper time and procedure, even though your trouble is heavy on you. So it's recognizing that sometimes doing the proper time and procedure doesn't alleviate your troubles. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't always Save end you up in your good. Yeah. Yeah, for he does not know what shall be. So who declares it to him when it shall be? Okay, that is like so much going against all of the doom and gloom. Um, mm, yeah, all the predictions you see on predictions Facebook these Predictions that days. we see. You know... No one knows what's actually going to happen, and you don't know when it's going to happen. I've been seeing stuff for 10 years on, oh, the end of the world's coming, and, and we're going to... It's here. It's it, going to hit the state. The end of the United States, the end of the dollar, everything's going to crash, and it's been 10 years at least. Minimum. And, you know, I'm not saying that yeah. it's not on the horizon we're wise enough to be able to discern the times we're wise enough to see things coming you know uh yeshua talks about we should be able to see you know discern when the seasons are happening and if you can discern that you should be able to see other things coming your way you know so we should be able to be looking ahead and be prepared and i'm not you know i'm not boohooing that but at the same time no one knows what's going to actually happen and no one knows when it's going to happen even those who are trying to plan and plot these things they don't know exactly how it's going to go how it's going to play out right. uh, every single plan is 
perfect until the very first thing <laughs> happens, and then the plan is worthless. Yeah, so every plan is perfect until you make contact with the enemy. That's Art of War right there. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah, the, she makes a really good point, because you can go on Facebook and see all sorts of doom and gloom, all social media, you know, the sky is falling. You go to the news sites even. Today, you know, inflation is worse than it's ever been before, and uh, the Fed screwed up in their inflation policy and made it worse. And yeah, because they couldn't discern what was coming. They had no idea and they didn't know what was going to work. They couldn't figure it out. And they tried to do one thing and guess what? It didn't work. Hmm. Of course, any, uh, any Austrian economic, <laughs> any person of Austrian economics could have told them these Keynesians that what they were doing was just going to make it worse. Unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't, uh, they didn't get the memo. They did. They just threw it away. Oh, right, right. They got the memo and said, nope, we're going to do what we're going to do. Broken window, please. Oh, anyway. <laughs> it's a, oh, wait. What did it say up here? Um, who can say to him, what are you doing? Right. He's going to do whatever He's he wants do anyway. Whatever the heck oh, that, he wants. that's right, right from right, scripture right, right there. Yeah. That, is, that is our current <laughs> state of, uh, of Fed policy and, mm -hmm. and government intervention in the economy. And, and you know what? We live with it. We There's nothing else we can do. We can, we can accept the current state of affairs for what they are. We can prep for what might be tomorrow. But uh, as we saw back in 2016, things can change fast. And in 2020? Right. And and for the better or for the worse. Right. You know, 2016, Trump came in, policies changed, and things changed quick. The economy changed. The price of gas went down. And just months Mm -hmm. um, 2020 hit suddenly everything's on lockdown and life changed for the worse. And even and this it's year just, it's changed drastically since right. January. Things can change extremely fast. And just because the trajectory is pointed in one direction doesn't 100% mean that that's the, the direction it's going to continue to go. I'm drawn to think of, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 7, And if my people, who my name is called, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then they shall hear from the heavens and forgive their sin and heal their land. We can still change things as a nation. Mm -hmm. uh, some things have been happening that could change things as a nation. <laughs> uh, I saw a meme on Facebook. It's Snoopy and Charlie Brown sitting there. And Charlie looks over at Snoopy and he says, You know, there's a lot of people praying that God would heal our land. But I think he's still waiting for us to do the repent and turn away from our wicked ways first. Right, yes. <laughs> well, that is that is part of the equation. And uh, so we, we can't get so caught up in trying to predict trajectories that we lose sight of the ability of God to intervene and to change the course of history mm -hmm. in a moment. And that brings us to verse 8, which is a very powerful verse. I'm going to read my translation, and then Rebecca's going to read her translation, and then we're, we're going to discuss this. No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no discharge in battle, and wrongness does not release those who are given to it. And mine says, no one has authority over the wind to restrain it, nor authority over the day of death. As no one is discharged during a battle, so wickedness cannot rescue its master. All right, so the first part of that verse is profound. Um, just like last week, we saw who can straighten what was bent, and Rebecca made a, a really good point of, well, Yeshua did, the, mm -hmm. the woman who was hunched over. He, he 
straightened her. It was, it was, God had made her crooked and bent and he straightened her up. Well, here again, we get this, no one has power, no man has power over the spirit in my translation. In her translation, it's over the the wind. wind. But we know that Yeshua did. Mm -hmm. He had power over the wind. He stilled the winds and the waves. And they they were were astonished and said, what matter of man is this? Yes, what man can do this? Uh, Well, no man, actually. Uh, God can. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, And that's so profound. And then... Who has power over the day of death? Well, Guess Yeshua what? did. <laughs> Yeshua had power over the day of death. He 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 reversed the death of many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not to, least of all Lazarus. Um, but there's also the twelve the the twelve year old girl who was dying. There was the uh, the Roman centurion slave, and and many others. That were heading towards death, and Yeshua just reversed it. And those that came out of their graves. At at the crucifixion. At the crucifixion. I mean, that is something that's very commonly overlooked. But I can't even begin to imagine the impact that that had on the society. Right, yeah. And and their graves were opened at the crucifixion. They didn't actually come out until the resurrection. Right, Um, right. But yeah, Yeshua wasn't the only resurrected dead person walking around after the resurrection. There were multiple dead people who were walking around after the resurrection, and many people saw them. We shouldn't forget that, that God, Yeshua, they have authority over these things. So, And it's so profound when Solomon's, you know, he's contemplating before this going, what man could possibly have this power? Well, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has this power. Mm-hmm. And that is that is something that uh, should make us all stop and pause. And, and it truly does help to reveal the deity of Yeshua. And I think that it makes the choice of the recorded miracles all that more powerful. Yes. Because it points us back to see passages like this, where it's just kind of a nod toward that, but... When you start reading it and diving in and see that beauty there, it just makes it so much more poignant. Right. And and I think that, I mean, we know that there were thousands of other miracles that could have been recorded. So the ones that were selected, there was a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second half of that verse is actually kind of hard to parse together. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's mostly because we're looking for likeness in, in theme, almost. Parallel? The, yeah, well, there there is a parallel here, but it's not in the way that we would expect it. Um, so there's no discharge, just as there is no discharge in battle. So you're on the battlefield, you don't get your, your retirement papers or your release papers while you're on the battlefield. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. So, too, wickedness or wrongness does not release those who are given to it. And we expect there to be like some sort of parallel, you know, being released in the battlefield. Okay, what does that have to do with wickedness releasing those who are who are given to it? But the connection is that it's impossible. Your wickedness will not rescue you. You might prolong your days, but you're not going to rescue your life through wickedness. It's just as impossible as a man swinging his sword in the shield wall, suddenly getting his discharge papers and being told to go home. Mm -hmm. it's impossible it's not going to happen yeah i kind of see what you're saying i also kind of see it as you're not going to be 
You're not going to be rescued in the middle of battle. You're not going to be given freedom in the middle of battle. Right. And so wickedness, which we can kind of equate to battle, you know, because when you're when you're in the middle of it, it's it's pretty wicked. It's pretty oppressive or or all consuming. It's not going to rescue you either. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It it does. And and that's part of what's so hard to discern about this is we just kind of have a hard time with the language to kind of describe what's going on here. Um, Mm -hmm. But there is a parallel and it's just a little harder to discern than we would usually expect from, from Proverbs of these sorts. All this I've seen and I applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which a man rules over a man for his evil. Now yours says something slightly different. Yeah, mine says second half. sometimes one person dominates another person to his own harm. All right, so yours is, is ref- using it reflexively. A man is dominating over another person, and it reflects back on the on the oppressor and harms him. Mm-hmm. Mine does not use it reflexively. The time is for the man who oppresses the other man to that second man's evil. The oppressed one's evil? Right. To yeah. the evil of the oppressed one. I mean, this is like uh, Soviet Russia and the gulag system. There, there was a time for the oppressor to oppress and bring evil down upon those who are under him. I think it's both. Right. Exactly. I think both are in play here because the, the, there is a time for people to be oppressed for the evil of the people who are being oppressed. But then that evil that is being used to oppress will reflect back on the one who's doing the oppressing and will end up in their own evil. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that throughout history time and time and time again. Absolutely. Um, I mean, going are... back to the, the gulag, you know, it, yes, it absolutely destroyed those who were sent to the gulag. But when when it was revealed to the world, I mean, Russia as a major power is is just now coming back into kind of its the own world stage. Yeah. It's taken years and years and years and years. Uh, Twenty. Almost. If you really want to dig into the depravity of the heart of man, the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think it is. Man, that book will make your stomach turn. It Um, is not light reading. Not light reading and not for the faint of heart. But it is a true account of what living under Soviet socialist rule was like. Mm -hmm. And it it is absolutely terrible what people were doing to each other. And that's kind of what Solomon's talking about here, um, is that there's a time for that in God's scheme of time. I saw the wicked buried, and they used to come and go from the holy place, but will soon be forgotten in the very city where they did this. So I, I don't get this. How? I mean, the holy place, clearly, we're talking about the temple. Right. Um. So so the, there's a wicked man who would go to church mm-hmm. and appear pr- pious and righteous and upright before the people by doing all the right things, but he's truly a wicked man. And he's going to die too. He's going to be buried. And everybody's going to forget about him. Yep. 
That's what it's that's what it's getting at. And I think it might be that following verse, that verse ten, that would cause the authors to say that the previous verse was a, using his reflexively. Where it's the one who's oppressing who then has the wicked and evil come back on him. Because in this following verse it is that one who is doing the wickedness mm-hmm. who dies and everyone forgets about him. Yeah. Uh, except for they become a byword and a warning through history, you know, the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Maos, the the uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the the right, the Neros, you know, the terrible, terrible rulers throughout history. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is filled in them to do evil. Now. There's a saying that's popular in our society is that justice delayed is no justice at all. And on the surface, in a way, that is true. And that's kind of what this is getting at is that people, we don't, we don't judge the wicked very quickly mm-hmm. and people get away with crimes. And so it stirs up this wickedness in men who think, oh, well, maybe I can get away with it. Uh, and even in the case of cosmic justice, it's not, executed immediately if it were none of us would be alive yeah that's mercy right that's mercy and that's something we can't forget because there's so many that want to be down on god for not um being more proactive in justice right exactly or how could he let these things happen how could he how why didn't he prevent the you know the shooter in texas and why didn't he prevent the, this, that, and the other, and and it's because because God is merciful, and He doesn't right. He doesn't expect automatons. He doesn't want He do, He doesn't want automatons. He wants you to make choices, and to give you those choices, He gives you the choice to do wrong, even when you do wrong against others. Right, and uh, and yeah, the delay of justice it, it does stir up in the hearts of men to to go ahead and do their own evil. Right, because they say they they can get away with it. Right, and there's copycats. There's oh, I want to make a name for myself in this way, and it's it does give the option, give the temptation, if you will, to engage. To, in, yeah, to engage in that kind of behavior, and and it's not. I, I don't think this is even necessarily making a moral stand on no, that. Not it at just all. it it's just not. is. Right. It is what it is. <laughs> but at the same time, in verse 12, he says, Even though a sinner might commit a hundred crimes and prolong his days, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God, for those who revere him. Right. So it's like, yeah, I get it. Justice comes slowly. Justice does not come in our timetable. And it might even encourage people to do more wrong. But regardless, it's actually going to be so much better for you and everyone around you if you love and fear God. Right. Yeah, if anybody ever tries to use that phrase against God, justice delayed is no justice at all. Well, without justice delayed, we'd all be dead, for one. And God's justice is tempered with mercy and compassion. And it's his will that we should all come to repentance, which means he has to allow us to go through evil so that we can repent. And so he gives us time to be able to do that. 
It's part of his character to be long suffering, to be patient, right? And uh, and so that's super important that we recognize that God's justice delayed is a mercy on all mankind. I think there's a point for God delaying His justice, uh, and it is kind of to test the hearts of men. Are you the kind of guy who's only not doing evil simply because God's going to strike you dead if you do it? Well, okay, let me hold, withhold my hand from these guys and let's see what's really in your heart. Mm-hmm. If your only motivation is is uh, fear of instant, yeah, fear of instantaneous punishment, then we'll withhold instantaneous punishment and let's see what's in your heart. You know what? Here's here's a bunch of people who got away with their crimes. Maybe you can too. Let's see what's in your heart. And that's not that's not the heart of love, and that's what God wants. Right. Right. There's a there's a famous saying, and I've I've said it before here on this uh on this podcast, but there among the believers there are three. There's the man who obeys God out of fear of his hell. This is the love of a slave. There's the man who obeys God hoping to attain his heaven, and this is the love of a merchant. And then there's the man who loves God simply out of a pure heart of love for God, and this is the love of a true man. You can respond to God in three ways. You can you can hope to avoid his punishment, but that's that's your fire insurance. That's acting as though God is your master and you're just a slave and you're hoping to avoid the whip. Um, then there's the hoping to attain his his heaven, to to gain glory, to get good things from him. But that's that's greediness. That's that's a merchant's heart. And just simply love God for the sake that he's God. Right. Um, and that's the that's and the pure and honest just because that's what he asks you to do. Right. That's the pure and honest motive of love towards God. But it shall it shall not be well with the wrong one, nor would he prolong his days as a shadow because he does not fear before God. So this wrong one who prolongs his days and ends up living a long life because of his evil, well he doesn't prolong his days before God. He doesn't mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't attain God's heaven. He he gets he's caught up in the physical and the now, almost like this book is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then verse fourteen gets into that that real kind of dispels any kind of um, naivete that people may have over what he's just said. Uh, there's a futility which has been done on earth that there are righteous ones who get according to the deeds of the wrong, and there are wrong ones who get according to the deeds of a righteous. I said that this too is futile. And I think we can look to the early parts of the book of Esther once again to, mm-hmm. to kind of see this in, in play. You have the, the wrong and the wicked Haman, who's elevated to second in the in the kingdom and is given all power and authority and honor. And then you've got the righteous man, Mordecai, whose <laughs> who's, uh, <laughs> entire people are about to be wiped out, who's weeping and mourning and lying in a hash heap and tearing his clothes in front of the palace you've got the righteous man you have the righteous man being rewarded according to the deeds of the wrong and you have the wrong man being rewarded according to the deeds of the righteous mm-hmm. now in the case of esther those roles get flipped in an instant again that instantaneous reversal of fortune at play and they end up in the end getting what they deserve but, but that that's does, not, all, it's not that's always, not the, always case. the case right it's not always the case. There are evil men who live long and evil lives, and they never seem to be brought to justice. There's all sorts of stories throughout history of evil men stealing the credit 
for things righteous men have done and, and getting the honor and the praise and the adoration for this good thing that they did not do that a righteous man did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the righteous man then dies in poverty when his deeds and his actions are actually being praised and awarded and everything else. Right. There's, there's tons and tons of stories of that throughout history. Right. And, and I think that's kind of what he's pointing to. Yeah. It's meaningless. It seems a perversion of justice. It seems, but it seems like that should not occur, but it does. And it going back up to, to the beginning where it's talking about the, the swiftness of a sentence being carried out here. Justice delayed. We're seeing that again. But I don't think that that's... The point is that we shouldn't be setting our hopes on getting the earthly recognition for the things that we do. For that righteousness, is, yeah. Right. That's not our goal. That's not where our hope is found. We right. And we don't even do g- goodness and righteousness here for any kind of of earthly gain right and we get our we get our uh the example of this in yeshua and all of the apostles who were righteous who were good who who harmed no one and every single one of them was cut off and destroyed short lives and uh suffered terribly throughout them mm-hmm. uh that's that is the lot that we can expect as people especially if you attempt to be righteous in the face of an evil world is you can expect to be persecuted and right. to be to be harmed. So I recommend enjoyment. Enjoyment. Because there is nothing better for humanity under the sun except to eat, drink, and enjoy it. Oh my goodness. How many of y'all have walked into Hobby Lobby and seen the signs that says, Eat, drink, and be merry, and you've bought them right. and stuck them up on your walls? Right. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I actually did a, a uh, study on that phrase, the eat, drink, and be merry kind of thing. And Ecclesiastes is the only place in scripture where that phrase is portrayed in any manner whatsoever as good. That's a good thing. Right. Because as I was reading through this, I was kind of thinking, well, what about Israel in the wilderness? Mm-hmm. They had manna. They had water, and they were living in a wilderness. Right. The whole eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy your your lot, that was very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Or someone in a famine, or someone going through the depression, or, you know, what? It's easy for Solomon to say, right. since he's sitting up there high on the hog. But... Right. It is easy for him to say. And he, he's not wrong. In that we should find the the happy moments and enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in the midst of the wilderness, there are happy moments that, and things that we can enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that word right there, joy, right. that's what we need to hang on to. Because it's not this like, I'm happy all the time. Everything's perfect. That's not. Everything what is awesome. Stop it. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not. it's not that. It's joy. It's this undercurrent of, I mean, there's so many words that are kind of tied to joy. 
that you can't really truly separate it from the others. Peace, compassion, gratefulness, thankfulness, the fruits of the spirit. Those, those words are all kind of tied together. That's this joy. It's not just, hey, I'm happy and I'm going to paste a smile on my face while everything's burning down around me. Everything's great. I'm fine. No, you're not fine. But joy is something that's an undercurrent. It's a subterranean river of joy. It's not, oh, we're just, we're just having fun. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, the the biblical concept of joy is not happiness. You can be in the midst of mourning and still find joy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's hard to describe what it is exactly, but it's not our idea of happiness. You the can, joy of the Lord is my strength. Right, in that joy is, is where you find strength. So, yeah, that, we need to recognize the good things in life when we find them, when we have them, when we're in that position and, and learn to enjoy those things, enjoy the moments when, when they arrive and when they pass, then, you know, we just, there's a time for that too. Yeah. So then, yeah, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task, which has been done on the earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw the work of God that man is able to find out, the work that has been done before under the sun. For though a man labors to seek, yet he does not find it. And even though a wise one claims to know, he is unable to find it. Basically, you can spend your entire life to know wisdom, even to the point of going without sleep. Mm-hmm. And you are not. You can become the wisest man and see all of the works that God has done. And you are still not going to be able to discern or understand what is going on. You're never going to get it. Not, but you're never really going to find the end of it. And and Solomon, you know, we're, we're getting a little close to the, to the end here. And Solomon, I think, is kind of coming to this, beginning to realize that maybe there is no real answer to this question that I'm posing. Mm-hmm. And the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. Right. The more, the more we dig into this and the more I think about it, Every everything I come up with, there's always a downside to it. And there's, there's always, always an opposite, question. and there's always another question. And uh, and maybe maybe I, I won't ever be able to pierce this, uh, even as the wisest man. And that's such a huge thing because in the end, there, there's a bit of humility in recognizing mm-hmm. I just don't know. Yep, and that's always an okay answer. Right. And I think that being the wisest man alive and saying, you know what? I don't know. I just don't know. That's That shows some humility on his part. Right. And it's something that we need to do regularly. Yes. As the not wisest people on the earth <laughs> <laughs> saying, you know, I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Right. Or, you know what? Maybe it could be both. Or, you know what? Maybe you're right. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that should fill us all with humility. Just this idea that we'll never know the meaning of life. All of the philosophies that our world has now, all of this different uh, ways and structures of meaning and so on and so forth that various people get into, you're never really going to get to the bottom of it. 
But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. We're not advocating for the idea that nothing really matters. But we are advocating for the fact that we should we should pursue knowledge. We should pursue wisdom. But don't make that pursuit your full goal in life. We've known people who have. And they've basically become hermits. Hermits and completely disconnected. And they'll, you know come up for air every once in a while but it's a rare thing to see these people because they're so consumed with knowing everything and nailing it all down for themselves and understanding it all fully that they forget to live yeah they forget that they need to live this out into the world and and have community and be in community and and learn in that way too and it's it's rough to watch people kind of shrivel up and disappear because they're so pursuing this one thing. Right. And and I think that uh, kind of where we need to end is that uh, we can't forget to live. Right. And that's kind of the whole point of this, especially the last verse 15 through the end, is that you're never going to know it all. So don't forget to live. Don't forget to right. find joy in your experiences. Don't forget to, to stop and smell the roses every once in a while. Because you can you can overwhelm yourself. And we kind of touched on that last week. You can overwhelm yourself by trying to seek to be overly righteous or to seek to be overly foolish. And mm-hmm. uh, you just lose yourself to your passions. Don't forget to live. Don't forget to live. Regardless of, of what you do. That is, that's where true enjoyment of life is found. So as you, as you go through the week and as you go through life, don't forget to live. Seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.